Think about climate. You need to simulate not just for seven days, but you need to simulate for 700 or 7,000 days, right? You want to look out 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. And that's what we call a so-called million X problem. We can't solve it today. And we know that we need to be able to compute about a million times faster. So building a global climate model inside Omniverse, building a digital twin of the earth, in effect, is a project that we kicked off about a year ago. It's going to be many years before we're done, but we're already making some interesting progress and see some interesting early signs of future success with Omniverse. We call that project Earth2. Hi, this is Felipe Flores from Data Futurology. Today we have an extra special episode. We're going to be discussing all things AI factory. It's an episode focused on NVIDIA and all the innovations that they've done. They've got a collaboration platform. They talk about a sustainable Earth 2.0. We're going to dive into that. So it's going to be a jam-packed episode with a person who has a wealth of knowledge in this industry, an amazing trajectory. His name is Mark Hamilton. He's the VP of Solutions Engineering at NVIDIA. Mark Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you going today? Well, first of all, Felipe, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be on your show and talking to the audience there down under. I'm doing great. Looking forward to uh, the show. Amazing. Uh, so to kick things off, tell us a little bit about your, your background and your current role at NVIDIA. Well, I have one of the best jobs at NVIDIA. And I've had the same the same job title for 10 years since I joined. And so uh, I, my team basically helps all of our customers use our products. And so while the title is the same as when I joined 10 years ago, boy, the job is totally different. You know, 10 years ago, we were... Uh, we were just at the start of, of AI. In fact, it hadn't quite started yet. And so uh, 2012 is, is, is when AI started to take off. And so, but the one thing hasn't changed, right, is our GPU platform has, has been consistent ever since. And in fact, if you were writing CUDA programs 10 years ago on a 10-year-old GPU, uh, it'll still run today. And I wouldn't be surprised some of the audience out there may even have one or two of those old GPUs still running. But of course, so much more that's been developed in the area of AI. We have over 350 different software development kits and libraries and packages uh, today uh, in virtually all of them in one way or another touching AI. It's amazing the um, not only the the commitment that Nvidia has made into into AI and and supporting the community, furthering the technology to to make us all more productive and and to uh, allow us to apply AI in in every realm in every industry. Um, that's that's been amazing. Um, and but how how have things have things uh, changed during your tenure there? Uh, you were saying that you know you joined towards the early days. How how do things look like now? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> NVIDIA is uh, is over 29 years old. We'll celebrate our, our, our 30th birthday next April. And so I've only been here for about a third of that time. But, you know, the, the first third we were focused on, on PC gaming and mm-hmm. building graphics cards for, for that. And then uh, about the early 2000s, when CUDA was developed, it became a way to make the GPU generally programmable in, in being able to address a wide range of problems. 
Um, I mean, the early uses of the GPU for programming typically tended to be hard parallel problems that you might find in the high-performance computing space at a national lab, a university, oil and gas company, any place that has a lot of parallel code. And, and of course, NVIDIA didn't invent AI. You know, modern-day AI, the basic algorithms go back 30 or 40 years. Mm. You can find research papers on, on deep neural networks going back 30 years. <coughs> And, and what happened about 10 years ago is, is at the same time, several universities and, and se several students sort of rediscovered the, those papers and those algorithms. And at the time, we're aware of CUDA and, and GPUs and, and, and the computing power of those GPUs. And they sort of put two and two together. And it was that availability of large amounts of data, which, of course, by 10 years ago, we, we had thanks to the Internet. Um, the compute power of the GPU and these 30-year-old algorithms sort of reinvented and, and, and rebuilt to run on top of the GPU. And then we, we just saw AI explode. Uh, the early uses were a lot of the consumer internet companies and in, in really perfecting computer vision types of tasks. But since then, it moved on to all sorts of things. To today's One of today's newest fields is so-called large language models, or sometimes just called LLMs. These programs like GPT-3 that seem to magically invent text or, or answer questions. And so as we go through the show, I might talk a little bit more about large language models. Amazing, amazing. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, so I was wondering if we could dive into uh, the the concept of the AI factory. So this is one of the yeah one of the areas that I was hoping we could we could chat about a little bit. Um, could you tell us a little bit? I'll introduce the concept and then we can jump in from there. Sure. Um, well, you know, AI is a different type of software, mm -hmm. right? And it's not actually written by humans. Right. Uh, some of your audience may have, uh, much of your audience may have written some code. They may have written C, tra traditional software in C or Fortran or a newer language like Python, or maybe even done some JavaScript or other scripting language. Written a macro in Excel, right? In, in all of those cases, they're typing the commands at the keyboard, right? Taking some input, doing some operation on that input, taking the output. In modern day AI code isn't written that way at all. It, there's a program called a deep neural network. And again, uh, there's application frameworks that use these deep neural networks to write code. A great example of it would be TensorFlow. TensorFlow and PyTorch are probably the two most common AI development frameworks that you use for writing that AI code. But once again, you're not typing the code into TensorFlow. You're generally taking a large data set and feeding that data into the data set. And then out the other end comes, in effect, that computer code, uh, which then once you have the computer code, that's called training. So you train the deep neural network for a specific specific task, and then you operate it, you run it in so-called the inference step of AI. So a data factory, right, is just the way that, uh, the way that an, an organization would organize to write code, right? In the old days, you get your developers a PC or a laptop, you might have a file server to store the code, and you'd use GitHub or, or some other source code control system. And the code was all you needed, right? The software. And of course, with AI, 
the encode is very complicated, can't actually be read by a human, but the inputs then are uh, your data. It could be images, it, it could be uh, video, it could be uh, any sort of language data, or it could be synthetic data, which is generate, which may be generated by itself by another AI. And so just like if you think of what does a normal factory do, you know, almost any company that manufactures something has a factory or uses a factory. You put in raw materials, you apply expertise from a human or a machine to transform those raw materials into a finished product adding value along the way. So an AI factory is just a modern way of developing AI code. The inputs, the raw materials are the data. You still apply domain expertise. The AI doesn't write itself. You have to sort of, you have to generate what's called an AI model. And the AI model is what tells the deep neural network or informs the deep neural network how to actually take that input data and transform it into a program. And then the finished result is then just like the finished result of, of the factory and has added value. If you think about it, well, uh, you start with, um, uh, uh, if you're a consumer website, you may start with all of, uh, all of, uh, all of your shopping receipts for the day, right? What consumers bought. The output may be a description of what items are the most popular, right? The output of it may be a recommender system that then would recommend based on what was bought that day, when someone else buys one of those items, what do you recommend? Or if the inputs are images of thousands of different lung tumors, the output may be a computer program that then recognizes lung tumors and may recognize the difference between a tumor, a shadow that just represents normal pneumonia, or a shadow on your lung that is pneumonia, but impacted by COVID. Mm. Uh, very, very slight differences. And of course, we all know that, that today there's not enough radiologists in the world. So being to augment, make those, those radiologist jobs easier to do, faster to do, better to do, is a great output of an AI factory. It's amazing. It's amazing the um that that's you know the AI factory is almost like a um a, whole, a bit of a holy grail that so many organizations are are working towards and definitely want to um, make it a reality in more in more organizations. What would you say are some of the gotchas that people should be aware uh, in in that journey of of developing uh, an AI factory? Um. There's, of course, because just like the first factories that were built, right, there was lots of lots of, of gotchas. Uh, one is is certainly to uh, don't underestimate the need for data. Now, again, uh, people think of data. Uh, you think of some of the, the early AI programs uh, like uh, AlexNet. It was mm -hmm. the first AI that won this ImageNet contest. And ImageNet had for its data set 1.2 million labeled images. So that was sort of the input to the data factory, 1.2 million images that were labeled. Um, some people say, well, I don't have labeled data, so I guess I can't use AI. Again, there's lots of ways to generate synthetic data. And let me give you an example on, that is used in our AI factory that we use for building our autonomous vehicle or self-driving car software. 
if you live in Silicon Valley or probably in any major city in in Australia that that has uh, that, that has startups in in the AI space, you've probably seen some of these self driving cars, test cars driving around. They've got the lidar radar on the top, a lot of cameras in the front or, or the back. So you might have seen seen those driving around, and and of course they're driving around collecting data, right? It's raw data. It's it's not it's not labeled, and then so that has to go through a process that today can be semi automated to label the data. Say, so, okay, this was a stop sign, this was a red light. And of course, you can automate that as you go, because once you learn to detect a stop sign with 80% accuracy, then the next time you drive the car, well, 80% of the stop signs can be recognized automatically and labeled automatically, just checked by a human then, and only 20% need to be manually labeled. And that'll continually improve. But of course, it's been estimated um, that uh, you would need to drive a car about 11 billion miles to drive it on every road around the, the world in order to have really a self-driving car that could drive everywhere. And then, of course, whenever you made a change to the software, you'd have to drive another 11 billion miles. So if we only relied on cars, even if we had every car in the world collecting data as it drove around, it would take many, many years to collect enough data to train a fully self-driving car. And so, of course, NVIDIA, in our data factory, we not only process the data collected by our self-driving test cars, but we're actually generating data synthetically. And if you think about that, it sounds really complex, but anyone who's ever played a video game with some sort of you know, car racing or something, well, think about it. The scenes in that video game are simulated or generated data. Now, of course, depending on the quality of the video game, it needs to be a little bit higher resolution to actually test drive the car. If it looks if it looks toyish, if it looks really early video game-ish, well, the AI is actually going to is, is not going to learn to drive on a, a, a real street. So again, it, it has to be fo- photorealistic. But again, all of that data is generated, right? Just like in the video game, how does the video game know when you turn the steering wheel and crash? Well, because the video game has generated the car, has generated the track, so it knows exactly where it is. And so out of that driving simulation, right, you actually have fully pre-labeled data that is 100% pixel accurate. And again, for every mile that we drive a regular car, we can drive thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles on the GPU and are only limited by how many GPUs we have and how fast they are. Amazing. Amazing. That is uh, that is phenomenal. The the work in that space that you guys are doing is super, super exciting. Um, I also wanted to ask you about um, maybe slightly slightly different um, topic, but related to that, I wanted to ask you about, about digital twins and some of the work that you guys are doing in that space. I know that's, that's also very exciting. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, what NVIDIA has been doing in that area? Sure. Uh, the concept of digital twin isn't new, has been around a, a long time, but really it, w- it was impossible in the past to really put together a, a true digital twin at large scale, right? And, and think about it. Uh, let's stay with the car analogy. Think of a car factory, right? 
uh, the building itself, right, has the blueprint exists somewhere, mm. right, in, 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 in some form. Uh, think of the car. You have all of the CAD drawings for the car. They exist in some computer program some, somewhere. But, of course, they're not integrated with the, the blueprints from the car factory itself. And then what do you have inside the car factory? Well, you probably have robots, right? And, and, and so robo, robots have, you know, the blueprint for the robot is there, the training, the AI that, that drives the robot is actually a computer program. So in theory, you think, well, it should be easy to put together a digital twin of, of a car factory. Well, mm -hmm. the first problem that we had, right, is um, we got fooled a little bit by the internet. Right in in the the first generation of the internet, right, what we're all using today makes it very easy, right, to click on a website and see the data on that website. Even if your web browser or your laptop has never seen that type of data before or never seen the program, right, that's the beauty of the World Wide Web. It was universal, but the World Wide Web was really about two D data, right, and there's a whole world of three D data. Right. Think of think of all the if you're a designer, think of the 3D design tools that you use. You might use Katia, you might use Siemens, you might use PTC, all sorts of you know commercial 3D design tools, as well as all the consumer or prosumer tools. Think of uh, think of uh, Adobe. Right. How many people you use Photoshop or similar type tools? And of course, unlike the web, those tools don't really interoperate. Right. Sure, you could take that output of one tool, dump it to a file, upload it into another tool, but it's not dynamic, right? And so to build a digital twin, you really need this dynamic content. And what, what didn't exist in the past was a universal format, just like HTML was the universal format for the web browser, but it was really basically 2D. And so NVIDIA worked with Pixar, famous 3D company from the movie industry and, and, uh, and, helped, develop, um, and helped develop a universal 3D format uh, for doing exactly just that. And besides just sharing the data, it lets you share behaviors. Because think about it, with 3D design tools or a robot, you have the behaviors associated. How far can the, the, the arm move? So again, that's the basis for Omniverse. And, and Omniverse has a program called uh, the Omniverse Nucleus. And Nucleus is sort of this standard database. You very much think of the analogy of the web server, right, that held the HTML data. The Nucleus server, right, can sit in your company's network or can sit out on the internet or can sit in the cloud and can help people collaborate to start with 3D design tools. Now, once you can collaborate with those 3D design tools, you now want to start overlaying the virtual design with the physical or real world. So how do you do that? Well, one, at the start, before the factory is built, you can simulate the factory, just like we talked about simulating the self-driving car. Well, if you can simulate a car racing down your local highway, you can certainly simulate robots moving around a factory or cars moving down the assembly line. So you're now simulating the factory or simulating your, your physical world. And then once it gets built, even better through the world of all of the ever-growing IoT sensors, 
you're now bringing in those IoT sensors. So Omniverse lets you really build metaverses. There's so many definitions of metaverse, but really that overlaying the virtual world that is simulated with the real world, which is measured. And of course, um, there's all sorts of, of metaverses, right? People probably have heard of metaverse from a consumer social networking sense. Mm-hmm. Think of almost PC gaming. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a great use of, of, of the metaverse, of course. But, but in, a, in a gaming type environment, right, it doesn't have to be exactly physically accurate. Right? It doesn't have to obey all of the laws of physics mm-hmm. versus if you're building a digital twin of a car plant, it has to obey the laws of physics. So the GPU, NVIDIA's GPU, was really the perfect processor for building these digital twins. It's really the only processor in the world today that one does traditional math, 64-bit math, very fast and very well that original HPC work, because when you're simulating the laws of physics, that's 64-bit math. Now, of course, it has to do AI. It has to do AI equally well. And because it needs to be photorealistic and be photorealistic in real time, it needs the ray tracing cores, the RTX cores of the GPU. So being able to combine traditional simulation, AI, and photorealistic rendering in one GPU was the hardware that made it possible. And of course, then millions of lines of code that we've been writing for probably a decade now in Omniverse. We didn't call it Omniverse a decade ago, but some of the building blocks, the visualization, the 3D tools go back that long. That's incredible. And what what does that unlock for organizations uh, when they have a a 3D representation of, of their, say, of a plant or a factory, and then they overlay the information coming in from sensors. Um, what, what type of doors does that open? Uh, what what could they do from that point on? Well, um, all, sorts of, uh, all, all sorts of things. Let's just say, again, even before you build the factory, Right, uh, you're going to simulate the robots. Going to go uh, bring in the part. Uh, some parts need to be assembled by humans still, and maybe place it on uh, the table or, or the cart next to the human. Well, of course, you know uh, workers are in high demand these these days. A factory worker fit fairly highly paid mm-hmm. when they're experienced. If they have to bend down a little bit too far, they're going to injure more likely to injure their back. Right, and so by doing that simulation with a with a, with a real three D human, right, simulated again, you can tell how far down you have to bend when you're picking up a particular part. So you may uh, adjust then uh, the placement of that. Um, other things like even where do you place the different tools? Right, you, you want to place the most commonly used mm-hmm. tools, right? Sort of at chest level, so they're easy to reach. Something that maybe isn't used so often, you might go higher or lower with placing that in in the work cell. And again, whether that's a car manufacturing plant or that's a distribution center for a grocery store or for a e-commerce company, right? Think about it. It's what uh, it, what what gets purchased today by an e-commerce company or a big a big store chain is going to change 
tomorrow if it's raining, right? And so the layout of the, the factory, right? You could lay out the factory once and keep it that way for maybe three months, or you could dynamically change it every night based on, on how it was done the year before. And so being able to make fine-tuned changes in really in real time to the factory, to the assembly line, to any sort of task that involves atoms, people, material, places is super, super important. So we think of the meta world is, you know, maybe in social networking is just doesn't involve moving atoms, right? You're just sort of sitting on your couch, on your laptop or, or, or your phone. But in the enterprise world, right, the, the metaverse is going to be all about moving atoms and then overlaying the bits, the AI, the software, the simulation on top of that and having the bits match the atoms. That's incredible. The, um, yeah, the, the opportunities that, that come from, uh, you know, having the, having good and strong AI and then the, the omniverse uh, combination um, is the, the, the opportunities and the power is incredible. Um, for, I can imagine for, for companies that are, that are processing, say even like a, I don't know, a post office or a distribution center, having that digital twin uh, or in mining, uh, having a digital twin on, on how things are moving sort of in real time, what are the, the ways that the work gets done? And then with the AI being able to optimize that, and as you were saying, like optimize the design, optimize the, the pathways, the way the work is done, um, the, the, the levers that I can pull for organizations is, is incredible. Yeah, let me give you one one interesting example. In this one, I would have never thought of of this use. Right? It is again when you're uh, think of any sort of distribution center. You have things moving on, you know, boxes moving on a factory line. You're putting things in the boxes uh, to ship. Well, well, but one e-commerce company for the holidays they change their tape, right? That, that they use. You know, you know, you've probably gotten a box from an e-commerce company that's tape with some advertising on the tape. And so they said, happy holidays, whatever holiday it was. And that messed up all of their computer vision uh, algorithms. They weren't able to recognize the tape on the boxes anymore. Now, luckily, they had been using Omniverse and they had simulated this change to this different tape and sort of ran through. And so they caught it before, right? They actually made the change to the tape. Think about it. You're shipping... You know, you're shipping a million dollars a day out of a warehouse, hundred thousand dollars a day out of a warehouse, and all of a sudden you can't put tape on packages automatically. Think of the cost of that, right? If it's not caught ahead of time. So again, just one really simple example that that I love to talk about. Oh, that's a that's a great one. Um, Super super powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, The um, so now, now I wanted to see if we could jump to another topic, which I know um, that you guys are very passionate about, um, and that's that's around sustainability. Um, so with with all the um, the increase in in compute that has happened, that has led to you know the AI revolution for us to be able to do uh, digital twins, metaverses, and omniverses. There's um, 
there, sometimes there's a view to say, well, all this increased computing, it's giving us so much power uh, or so much uh, efficiency in the world, but it's also consuming a lot of a lot of electricity. Um, so I know that you guys have been thinking about the, the sustainability side of all this. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about that side? Sure. Uh, first, let, let me, um, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about how we build our systems and some of the sustainability there and how we're going to study some of the impact. But again, all of these examples in this next one are all ones that really NVIDIA didn't do themselves, right? We really focus on building the platform, right? Whether it's Omniverse, there's a platform for building digital twins, or it's Merlin, which is our platform for building recommender systems and, and onwards. So the example of the car, the car manufacturing plant, the e-commerce distribution warehouse, those were all customers of ours that, that, that built things. Uh, one of the really interesting use cases of Omniverse that is directly related to, um, to energy efficiency was around 5G design, mm -hmm. uh, 5G cell phone towers. But today in a 4G tower, right, what happens is the, the phone company will come in and they'll drive through the city and they'll survey it or they'll, they'll have it all digitally and they'll decide where to put the 4G antennas. And in 4G antennas are, are directional, right? So one may be pointing down the street, et cetera, but that direction doesn't change, right? They sort of point the antenna and they leave it there. And of course, one of the big advantages of, of 5G is that you have with more advanced antennas, they can be directional. So with via software. So without physically moving the antenna, right, in the morning, the antenna may be pointed on the side of the street that is the incoming traffic coming into town, in the afternoon coming out, right? When people are, are uh, walking, you know, into a building, right, uh, versus going out at lunchtime, right, D different patterns. And uh, in, in of course, though, with, with 5G now, you need to have, or, or with any sort of technology, with any sort of, you know, uh, technology as, as far as cell phones, you need more and more towers. I'm sure in your neighborhood, you've seen them putting up uh, some towers. And of course, not all towers are, are the same, right? You, you want, you're able to go through and change the power of uh, the power going through that antenna in the tower. Uh, what, what one, um, one, what one cell phone equipment manufacturer did is they, uh, they simulated a whole city. They had, they had mapping info of all the cities and of a city and think about it, a cell phone signal, right? It bounces off of a glass building differently than a wood building. It bounces off rain when it's raining, very sort of complicated simulations. But in effect, right, by placing a lot of different towers, a lot of different cell phone antennas of different power levels. And by going through and simulating all of this with a digital twin, and again, just like we can demonstrate, we can simulate a car going down the test track, right? We can we can simulate cars driving in and out of the city. We can, we can simulate pedestrians walking into a stadium, walking into an office building. So you can actually go through and support the higher 5G bandwidth, support more connections, but do it with lower power antennas, even though you're actually placing in more antennas. So, so remember, two parts of energy usage, right? One is 
the training part, and we always think, well, the training is where all those GPUs and, and using all of that power. And then, of course, the running or the inference, right, of it. So, again, yeah. when those radios get deployed, the cell phone radios, that sort of that inference, inference part. And so, again, um, fundamentally, the first thing I, I always remind uh, people is that, well, a GPU, right, think of, of our consumer GPUs. They might be 200, 300 watts versus 100 watt for a PC CPU or maybe even, uh, you know, 20, 30 watts for for your laptop. And people say, well, the GPU is more powerful, so it must be wasting energy. It actually isn't, right? Because again, when you use the GPU, you're using it for tasks that would take 10, 50, 100 CPUs to run. So mm-hmm. using 100, 100 watt CPUs versus using one 300 watt CPU, GPU, obviously the GPU is, is a lot more effective. But anyhow, like I said, Omniverse is a platform we, we built. We use it internally for, 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 for running our own internal business, but it's really a platform that, that we work with, with customers. We show customers how to use it. We show our partners how to use it. And then they go solve these interesting problems. Some problems are so hard in our of interest, not only to all of our employees, but to basically everyone on the uh, on the planet. And that's really studying uh, climate change in energy transition, right? Again, everywhere in the world, people are thinking, how do you transition to different power sources, uh, the, to energy sources? That's, of course, directly impacted to having impact on the planet and climate. You know, today as we speak, uh, all over the world, right? In China, in the U.S., in Europe, there's rivers at record levels, uh, in record low levels. Now, you're in Australia, so it's not the summer season there yet. So you, you, you haven't suffered from that yet. But, you know, Australia had all the wildfires a, a few years ago, right? And Australia certainly has a, a water problem already in many parts of the country. So what is the climate change going to mean to Australia in 50 or 100 years? And think about the weather report. Right. Well, uh, the weather report for today in Sydney or in Melbourne is probably pretty accurate. Right. Usually, I mean, they may, you know, if it says rain at five, it may rain at four. Uh, but, you know, usually, you know, usually it doesn't rain if it's not in, in the forecast. You can leave your umbrella at home. Um, if you go out a week, you can get the weather report for a week, but it's a little less accurate. Uh, right, it, it certainly you know it may say twenty percent chance of rain and on Friday, and then it ends up raining on um, on Friday. But think about climate. You need to simulate not just for seven days, but you need to simulate for seven hundred or seven thousand days. Right, you want to look out twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years into the future, and that's what we call a so-called million X problem. We can't solve it today. And we know that we need to be able to compute about a million times faster. So building a global climate model inside Omniverse, building a digital twin of the Earth, in effect, is a project that we kicked off about a year ago. It's going to be many years before we're done, but we're already making some interesting progress and see some interesting early signs of future success with Omniverse. We call that project Earth 2. I love it. I love it. Uh, the 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 scale of the ambitious projects that you guys take on is is incredible, and it really helps us uh, continue to develop the the industry and the capabilities. Uh, so thank you very much for that. And additionally, 
I really liked um, the discussing with you that um, you know GPUs are a more energy efficient way to unlock the power that we that we're able to from from AI from um, from Omniverse. That's that's fantastic. But then additionally, there's benefits on the optimization that the AI can bring on systems that are live in production. And that example around 5G, that's that's phenomenal to be able to make uh, the, the transmission of information more energy efficient because it has been optimized through AI. That's that's phenomenal. And then taking that you know up up a, a notch or maybe a, a few notches to Earth 2. Um, that's that's a humongously ambitious project. Um, so super, super exciting work um, that you guys are doing as always there. And I, would, I did want to ask you uh, for for organizations that are um, you know either dealing with these challenges or thinking about these challenges, at what point should they think about reaching out? Um, to to Nvidia or or um, or to your team or how how can people get get involved in in getting some help um, to look at uh, areas like the ones we've spoken about today? Uh-huh. Well, uh, first of all, we always love it when customers r- reach out to us, right? We we have you know uh, w- one of the things that we've learned to do even better. Uh, well, while we were all locked up for a few years during COVID is to uh, work remotely with our customers. And in fact, you know, think about it. Uh, Pre-COVID, right, uh, you probably did some podcasts, but, you know, most people wouldn't necessarily think of, of working with, with video. It wasn't commonplace. And, and yeah. today, everyone does. So there's a lot of ways to reach out. Uh, we have offices around the world, of course, and, and you can look us up. Most customers reach us online. And, and in fact, today, uh, we run what we call NVIDIA Launchpad. You can just go to launchpad.nvidia.com. And, and what Launchpad is, is uh, it's where we launch all of our new hardware and software products. So the first place we ever put any new so- software, first place we, we ever put any new hardware is in Launchpad. So again, those 350 different software programs, those all exist on, on Launchpad for customers to try out. Uh, and you know, earlier this year, we announced our, our latest and greatest GPU architecture, uh, the H100 Hopper architecture GPU. And so, you know, a lot of customers have been saying, well, you know, when am I going to see a, a, a hopper in 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 some, some of the big public clouds, you know, coming soon, go ask them, um, when will Dell or HP sh- ship me a, a hopper based GPU uh, coming soon, but, you know, go ask them specifically for their uh, ship dates, but uh, probably the first place uh, very, very soon uh, where you'll see um, where you'll see the H100 show up is in in uh, NVIDIA Launchpad. So we're very excited about making it uh, available there. And uh, you'll hear uh, all of the details on it. And, and I expect it'll be right around the time of our upcoming GPU technology conference, which is now only about five weeks away, coming up by the second week of uh, October. Super, super, super exciting. 
Mark, I want to thank you so much for spending uh, this time with us today, for sharing your knowledge, your experience, your perspectives, and all the exciting work that you guys are doing at NVIDIA. It's mind-blowing. The ambition of the projects, the scale, and how much you guys are pushing the envelope forward for all of us to leverage. So yeah, a huge, huge thank you. And this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Well, great being on the show, and I hope to, hope to come back again after we've done a little bit more work on Earth 2 and give you an update. That would be amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, mate. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also, go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you thanks again and see you next time